So this morning, the here and now Dhamma, this uh, continuous reminder, enlightenment here and now, liberation is now on and on like this. So that it's not like personal, it's not like I'm liberated now or I should be mindful now. So just to to emphasize this, these pronouns, me and mine, I, and uh, how we personalize, everything becomes uh, t- stained with our personalities and the sense of ourself. <coughs> and so this is, uh, you know, I should be enlightenment in here now. All I have to do is just pay attention, and I'm enlightened. Is uh, the kind of the Sakaya Ditti reaction to such such statements as enlightenment here and now, liberation here and now, nibbana here and now. <laughs> so that, like reflect on that, because uh, you know, so that you begin to to know this tendency of the human individual, and we've got strong egos to deal with. You know, a sense of rights and self-importance and uh, attachment to our values, principles, uh, independence, freedom, self-assertion, being really me. And all these are the kind of ethos of the time, isn't it? It's a time to assert your individuality, to proclaim yourself. I'm just me. I am who I am. Just be yourself, and these are the the things that I hear and have heard in my life affected this uh, sakya ditti. Stand up for yourself. All this uh, don't <laughs> don't let anyone put you down, and uh, self-assertion. They have special seminars on asserting yourself. Now in a worldly sense, I'm not, I'm nothing against that. You know, it's not like I'm condemning that. <clears throat> but also we need to put it in its perspective so that we aren't, that isn't our way of understanding life. You know, the, where the wisdom will never arise if we only operate from what I think, what I feel, my rights, my views. And so the mindfulness then is the is the gate, the door to the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And that is outside the self view. It's not sakya ditti anymore. It's not uh, <coughs> you know. It's not me and mine. It's not proclaiming myself as a person, as an ego, as a physical entity that's. That, that I identify with. There is the unborn. Uh, this is, it's a statement about, I, it's not I am the unborn, the uncreated. So it's not coming from language, from the pronouns, personal pronouns, possessive pronouns. It's uh, a statement not to be grasped as an end in itself, but to be reflected upon. There is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And therefore there is the escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. Now that can be totally meaningless to many people, you know. It just sounds, you know, like some, something that doesn't make any sense in terms of maybe the worldly values that we have, the, the uh, values of our culture, of our society, of our age is not, nobody talks about the unborn, uncreated, unformed, and escape from it. It's all about liberating yourself as a person. So human rights 
and all this are, you know, they're about, you know, me and mine, my rights, my life, my freedom, what I think. And so that emphasizes the separateness, that I'm separate from you and that <clears throat> I'm, it's my duty to proclaim my rights, assert myself and, and uh, prove that I am somebody because to not be anybody is considered, is, 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 you know, is, is usually regarded with contempt. A nobody, he's a nobody. He's not, you know, doesn't have any fame, doesn't, you know, just a, a mediocre milk toast couch potato, nobody. And then they think of the strong personalities, the great egos, the, the charming, the charismatic, the, the celebrities. People have made something of themselves. This is, this is worshipped and adored at this time. It's what, what news is, what people talk about. Then the reflective life of uh, meditation. It's not taking sides that I should become a nobody. You know, I've got to get rid of my assertive ego and my strong personality and, uh, in order to become a nobody. It's not about that I have to become anything or do anything, you know, to change anything other than see it from a different way. See the suffering. Notice the dukkha of being attached to myself as being important, uh, important person uh, with power, with rights, with good opinions, sensible views, admired by others. Or the feeling of freedom from feeling that I'm just a nobody. My opinion doesn't count. I'm just, you know, <clears throat> mediocre man with nobody pays attention to, an old, old man that old people tend to get ignored these days. They're nobodies anymore when you get old. <clears throat> Unless you've got a really strong personality. Once you start going gaga, dementia and so forth, then they will just lock you away, put you somewhere, get you out of the way. So this is a sense of nobody and somebody. And this awareness, the awareness then opens us to these, uh, these attitudes of somebody and nobody. Because awareness isn't, isn't anybody, isn't a body, isn't a buddy. <laughs> now, learning to, to recognize this, you know, this whole, whole retreat, this, this formal retreat, the emphasis is on this encouraging, taking you to the stream. So I've, my efforts in this direction, like taking the horse to water. So I, I don't see how I could, you know, I, you're at the water, but you can't make a horse drink the water, so that's... <laughs> we'll see how many can drink the water. We'll drink it. <laughs> so the, the stream, isn't it? The, you can take the horse to water. So the, you're at the water's edge right now. It's important to get to know this, this ego, this sakayaditi. Not judge it. I mean, it's not a, you know, about developing a, a better personality or criticizing uh, your personality. It's not about whether your personality is, is good or bad, but it's recognizing it. 
It's sake, so it's put in this category of a sangyojana or a fetter. For convenience, it's not a kind of put down, like we've got, we shouldn't have personalities. But it's knowing this is personality, this is sakaya ditti, the ego. And it's all based on conditioning. It's not natural phenomena. It's a, it's a, it's a condition, sense of self. Uh, this identity with the body, with uh, the language that we use, the way we think, the thoughts, the memories. I am me and mine. And this on a conventional level is all right. I mean, we, you know, we all have to use the convention of I am this, I'm Ajahn Sumedho and I have a, you know, I was born 75 years ago and things like this. And so it like, can sound, you know, like Sakya Ditti. Or is it just conventional reality? Samud Satya. Uh, it's just conventional, meaning it's, it's merely a, uh, a convention we use in in uh, social relationships, in being a citizen of a country, and being an individual in a group, and having a name and an identity, passport, ID card, pay the taxes, vote for the prime minister, <laughs> like this. We operate on the conventional level. So that's not a criticism of the convention, but you see the. The liberation is being free from the convention, not getting rid of it, knowing a conventional reality as that, as anicca, dukkha, anatta, rather than as our real world or our real self. And this takes a, a strong determination to use everything in a, every opportunity of, uh, you know, where the sense of me and mine, my feelings, how I feel, my sensitivity, my position, my rights, what I think. And this can be, you can take it to extremes, you know, like I'm the most important person in the world or I'm the least important person in the world. You know, so it's, it's by getting to know this this, uh, you know, the extremities and, and the, then the average because, you know, you have to be a bit balmy to, to think you're the most important person in the world. Even though we can uh, live with that assumption and never recognizing it. Because each one of us is, you know, our life is the important one because that's what we're living. Whether you think yourself important or unimportant in the the necessity of existing as in the human form is this is this is where we experience life from this form from this body <clears throat> whatever condition it's in whatever is happening to it and then we might feel you know that we're nobody and but that's another you know but in terms of the practical realities of survival of having to live as a human entity at this time, this is the center, isn't it? This is the center of the universe. It's not, I, Ajahn Sumedho, am the center of the universe. That would be like a, a kind of form of madness. But in uh, just the reflective moment of, the, of, of, of this moment, you're, you know, the position you're in, the body, this is the center for the universe, as far as, you know, you, you're a watching, you're observing the universe from this point, within the limitations, boundaries, restrictions of the body that you have, in whatever posture it's in, in whatever, you know, conditions are happening to it. But it's not about I, Ajahn Sumato, I'm the center of the universe, or I'm God. It's not a pro proclaiming or overestimating on a personal level. It's just a noticing that the realities of our life, whether you're the most unimportant 
mediocre nobody in the society or the, the most famous, beloved, admired individual member of this society, it's the same thing. Each one, is the, each one of us is the center of existence at this moment. And that's just the way it is. And so opening to, you know, not interpreting it in terms of personality anymore, psychedelic, but in awareness. Because then we have perspective. When we can see the way it is through wisdom rather than perceive the way it is through habits, through conventions, So Sakaya Ditti is a habit, it's a convention. And if we don't know it, then, then we, we are, you know, we're, we're <coughs> imprisoned in that. We, everything that happens to us has to be interpreted through I am, me and mine, through the conventional realities. So we, we, we never have any perspective on anything except about my feelings and then the fears that come of being rejected or despised or humiliated or, you know, the, the way that on a personal level, the fear that generates from asserting one's separateness makes us always frightened because we're putting ourselves into a position of vulnerability because the ego depends on praise and blame you know we we want to be praised respected admired we don't want to be blamed and rejected and humiliated and so from the personal level there's always fear around that So with awareness, then we begin to recognize, we have this perspective, there is the escape from that, from Sakya Ditti. If there was not, if there was not the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, there'd be no escape. We'd be trapped, helpless victims of the Sakya Ditti we've acquired. And the Sakya Ditti isn't always intended, you know, in deliberate intention. We don't choose it, it happens to us. It, through circumstances, the sense of one's self-worth and important position and respected and loved and admired or rejected or is at the bottom of the heap or the top of the heap. This is, this is conditioned. Not that we choose, particularly choose these attitudes or these assumptions, they, they happen to us through, you know, the experiences that we have as an individual living in the in our families, in our society. Sila Bhattabharamasa also, seeing as, as cultural conditioning, social conditioning, assumptions we make as a social group, <coughs> cultural biases, prejudices, attitudes, and then Wichikicha, the <clears throat> the doubting that is the result of asserting yourself endlessly as a person, as a separate person, through uh, just the ignorance of Dhamma, through just the force of habit. You know, it's hard to sustain a position as an important person for a whole lifetime because conditions change. So a sense of my self-worth, which may be dependent on being loved by m my mother and father and being protected from dangers and, and on and on like this, that, you know, you can't sustain that level of good luck for a lifetime, you know, because it, we're subject to all kinds of other conditions through, through the passage of time, through experience. So when our self-worth is dependent on being respected, admired, having power, position, authority, 
being appreciated and loved. These, uh, when the conditions for that aren't present, then who are we? You know, we, we, we feel despair or anger, resentment. Or maybe we've, <clears throat> you know, been born into <clears throat> situations where we weren't wanted and weren't loved, weren't, you know, we had to, we were criticized and blamed and despised. But in, uh, in awareness, you see, the escape is, is the awakened, awakening too. Sakya ditti silabhata bhāyamāsa, not getting rid of them. It's like seeing things in perspective. And that's where this, this unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, it has no boundary, it doesn't have a form. It's not limited by form, it's not limited by size. And that is recognized, the reality of, of consciousness. Consciousness has no boundary in terms of right now. When you're just uh, aware, awareness, non-attached awareness, whether you, you, you're not coming from a conditioned position has no boundary. Immeasurable, boundless. So in the scriptures they have the vinyanang anidasanang anantang sapato pabang. This is the, the, the unlimited, unbounded light of consciousness. And then uh, as we, you know, as we are operating from Sakya Ditti Sila Bhattabharamasa Vichikicha, we don't know that. We're operating from the, co through consciousness, but out of ignorance. So it's habitual. You know, we acquire the habits of Sakya's of the self. Everything is interpreted about what's happening to me and how I feel. So in this, uh, and then the, the, the thinking mind is based on that ignorance. You know, the thinking mind is dualistic. And so emphasize, they get to recognize what thinking is. You can't, not to think about thinking or analyze thinking through thinking, it, you just go around in circles that way, thinking about thinking. But observing thinking, your own, the thinking that's happening, whether it's uh, arrogant thinking or, or intelligent thinking, whether it's reasonable thinking, righteous thinking, stupid, foolish, n crazy, those are the quality, thoughts can, you know, the thinking, that because of dualism, then they can go from one extreme to the other, from being very intelligent, reasonable, to being very unintelligent, very stupid and unreasonable. Thoughts, you know, are not, is not, you know, if we, if we try to, to just, we try to be reasonable, don't we? This is, let's be reasonable about everything. Let's solve all our problems through just reasoning them out, through being rational, reasonable, sensible. We're all intelligent people, educated. Let's be reasonable about everything, and that, that, uh, that's uh, admired in the society, cultural conditioning. Now reasonable, being reasonable is certainly admirable. You know, but it does depend on thinking to be reasonable. So then we, we tend to despise ourselves when we're not being reasonable. How many of you feel embarrassed or, or humiliated or worthless when your emotions take over and you're no longer reasonable? When you're caught up in emotional 
strong emotional feelings, you, nobody can be reasonable with that. Emotions aren't reasonable. So we, you know, we get to recognize that emotional habits of feeling elated or depressed or secure or insecure or happy or sad or loved or hated or angry or broken-hearted or resentful, jealous, frightened, bored, depressed, despairing. So we say, you know, cheer up life when somebody, somebody, you know, somebody dies, the, the person who's, you know, whose loved one separates or dies, then we say, no, you know, it'll pass. You get just, you know, stiff upper lip, don't make a scene. Uh, it'll go away, you'll get used to it. And we all have to die anyway. Now that's being very reasonable, isn't it? It's, it's so, you know, it, it is, it's, you know, everybody has to die, we know that, that's reasonable. And we know that the loved ones, our parents or whatever, will die probably before we do. So we all know that, that our mothers and fathers have to die. That's reasonableness. But when it actually happens, what is it like? You know, when your mother dies, and, you, and somebody says, well, you know, we all have to die, there's that, you know, is that very helpful? Because we know that already. But it's, you know, that's reasonableness, but it's not very, you know, helpful to the situation because this is what I'm feeling, grief. When a mother dies, you feel this way, which is, may not be reasonable, but it is what it is. So, and reason depends on attachment to thinking. Logic and re logic reason is a skillful use of the intellect. So it's not to be despised. But it also, if if we bind ourselves to reasonableness, then we we uh, tend to uh, deny how we're feeling or judge it as in in some negative way. So learning, you know, like the sakyaditi is uh, is is. Not necessarily, it doesn't, it isn't reasonable particularly. It's, it's like this feeling lonely, feeling nobody loves me, and feeling uh, rejected by others. Or this can be totally unreasonable based on, on nothing in particular that's happened, but it's just a, a, a kind of emotional habit that we have. And so this awareness then is, uh, is where we can see it. You know, see this feeling of, I feel so lonely, I could die kind of feeling. Or, you know, my mother has died and I feel it's total despair and grief is like this. And then some Buddhist comes along and says, everything's a Nietzsche, you know. We all have to die. <laughs> Thanks a lot, you know. I'll call on you whenever I need comfort. <laughs> but that's reasonable. Now, an emotional world is like this. And, and that which is aware of the emotion. That is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And so it's getting to, it doesn't deny the emotion or suppress it, it recognizes it. It receives it, it knows it for what it is. And so it's not kind of judging it and saying, you know, in, in kind of according to worldly values or reasonable attitudes, <coughs> or justifying it. 
you know, personally justifying all your feelings. But it's recognizing, it's like this right now. The emotion, the feeling of this moment that exists in, in consciousness is like this. The unborn aware of the born, the created, rather than the created, the born, the created, trying to find Nibbana or trying to, you know, being caught up in the proliferating habitual tendencies that result from attachment to conditions. So as long as we don't have that perspective, we are helpless victims of our conditioning. So that's why I particularly like this, there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, because to me that, that says everything. I don't have, I, you know, I, I realize that no matter how I see myself as a person or, you know, the habit, emotional habits I may have and how life has treated me and whatnot is no longer, you know, is no longer just helplessly a victim of it, of the society that I live in, of the people I live with, or the family that I'm in, or the group. Nor is it a rejection, nor a judgment of rebellion and anger and resentment. But it is seen clearly from the a discerning position, knowing the unborn is this, in which the born can be observed, its nature to arise and cease. What is born dies. What is created is destroyed. <laughs> what has a beginning has an ending. So this is anicca dukkanata. All conditions are impermanent, unsatisfactory and not-self. Now the, the value of a tradition, such as the Theravada tradition that we're using, is to, you know, it's a, it's a traditional form. It's not created by me or you. It, you know, it comes from a lineage and we regard it as going back to the Buddha of India 2,552 years ago. <clears throat> so that, you know, it has a lineage and, and of course that that's also conditioned, isn't it? Traditions are conditions. So Theravada Buddhism is not the unborn, uncreated. But it is a convention that we've intentionally chosen. It's not been forced on us. Now how to use this convention to break down to see through, to reflect the Sakyaditi Filabhattabharamasa Vichikita. You know, that's the, that's the point of this, uh, the Samana life, the monastic life. It's not to reinforce Sakyaditi Filabhattabharamasa Vichikita, but to reflect it. So when we pay respect to Sangha, it's not to individuals. You know, it's not like Buddhist monks and nuns are the Sangha that we respect. Yet on a conventional way, that is. You know, it's a form. But when you start judging, you know, your personal attitudes and reactions to uh, the Buddhist monks, the nuns, that's, that's Sakya Ditti Sila Bhattabharamasa. That's not the Sangha. 
it's your, you know, your own kind of feelings and personal reactions and memories and that, that, that arise when you think of Ajahn Sumato or a member of the Sangha. It feels like this. So notice that, that our respect for Sangha isn't, it's no longer, uh, you know, the, the aim of the Samana is to de-emphasize the personality, not to exploit myself as a personality, uh, uh, using my personality as how I live in the Sangha. So we have these, the Vinaya rules, the Padimokha and so forth as agreements on, you know, it's not, I didn't invent the Padimokha. It's not personal, uh, you know, not my invention, not, you know, it, I, it was established by the Buddha. So this Padimokha is the lineage, you know, it holds the lineage, this 227 rule Padimokha that has sustained, that has been able to allow this, this tradition to survive through 2,552 years. So it's, uh, you know, it's not to be just seen as some kind of perfunctory fortnightly recitation. It's just, you know, keeping the tradition going as a kind of, kind of personal loyalty to tradition. You know, it's, it's a recognition, a sense of sangha, of gratitude, of respect for, for a convention that we've all voluntarily uh, submitted ourselves to. So then people say, well, a lot of the rules don't really make any sense. Uh, you know, there's some of the rules in it about, um, you know, sitting mats made out of black uh, lamb's wool and, and not mix it with uh, white or something like that. <laughs> Things that don't really apply to anything that we, we experience at this time. So we can, we can criticize it. And we should get rid of those rules or change them. There's always amongst Westerners you know, we're going to improve Buddhism. Uh, you know, we're going to uh, make Buddhism better. Uh, and I've seen this so many times in, uh, with Western uh, monks and nuns. That's always a sense of we're going to improve on it and, uh, you know, reform it, make it up to date, modernize it, you know. This is, uh, you know, we can, we can get rid of some of the, the rule about the, the sitting mat made out of black wool mixed with so many parts of white wool or whatever. Well, let's just, just throw that away. It doesn't make any sense. So we can get into our, you know, our Western mode, our Sakyaditi, Silabhattaparamasa, Wichikicha position. And we can, there's a lot to criticize. You know, it isn't, isn't perfect. Padimok isn't kind of ultimate perfection, flawless rules. But it is, uh, it, is uh, it represents the Vinaya, and it's the actual convention that has allowed this tradition to survive to this very present moment. Just that, the, the Padimokha. Without that, without that, then the whole thing, it goes every which way. You know, the, there's, uh, you know, just breaks up into personal views, opinions, gurus, cults. So it's just trying to, to reflect on the use of a convention. It's it, what, it, you know, how it, it's, how to use it is not the kind of just to bind yourself to it with Sakya Ditti Siddhabhata Paramasa. 
But it does, when you think of it, gives, like when I think of this lineage from the, you know, the Pali tradition and the, uh, that's carried through to the present, to this, this present situation, I, uh, it, get, it fills me with a, a kind of, a sense of uh, rapture, respect. You know, something that, that has survived for so long and still works. It's not just the arcane, archaic, uh, you know, thing we're trying to breathe life into again, make it, you know, try to resuscitate it. It actually has been able to survive through the rise and falls of how many kingdoms, civilizations, empires, wars, periods of great abundance and respect where Buddhism flourished and where it almost disappeared. So I mean, it's, without that, without that, that convention that holds the, that holds the, holds the thing together, then it is a matter of each one for themselves, whatever you think, whatever you want to do, however you want to interpret Buddhism. Now there's no central authority to enforce, you know, that you've got to do it this way or else you're, you'll be burned at the stake. Now, especially in Western world, you can do anything you want with it. You know, so there's here in, in Europe or America, you've got endless variations, permutations on Buddhist themes modern Buddhism, gay Buddhism, black Buddhism. Everything is adjusted to, to individual conditions. Which is, you know, is, is uh, not, I'm not even criticizing that. It, it, if that's what people want to do, I'm no, you know, I'm not going to stop them or object to it because it's, uh, you know, it's, we have the right to do whatever we want. It's not, it's not a convention that, or a, a religion that, that is, you know, uh, oppressive. It's pretty free to do whatever you want as a Buddhist, actually. So you've got Nichiren Buddhism, uh, you've got... <laughs> All kinds of, you know, British Buddhism, American Buddhism. So this, is, and, but notice that this, this is not about my interpretation of Buddhism, but it's, it's a willingness to surrender my interpretation or my desires about it to reflect on them. To, it's impersonal, and this, this, uh, this sangha, monastic sangha, isn't about a group of individuals, but about supatipano, ujupatipano, practicing directly right, in the right way. So it, it, it's not a. And this is, this is uh, you know, the value of, of respecting a tradition because it's not personal. If I'd arranged um, Buddhist monasticism, it would be very different than, the, than this tradition. If I just, you know, decided to form my own cult and do what I wanted with it, then it would be very different. But in the... In this, uh, what I learned by living with, in Thailand with Lung Pon Cha was, you know, I could see my own arrogance and conceit and wanting, you know, by living, having to live and follow a traditional form, which sometimes I didn't particularly see the point of it, or I, uh, you know, I could, I thought I could see a better way to do things than what the way they were doing it. I could. You know, all kinds of, of conceits, cultural conceits, personal uh, arrogance would be reflected through this, through having to surrender and live within the structure that was not 
my creation, not my thing. So then the, the you know, the Siladhara form comes from that, from, is a, it has that lineage connected to the Patimokha. So it's not to be regarded as some kind of modern uh, invention that is, uh, you know, that is independent or lesser than. But it's, but recognize that this, in this tradition, the Patimokha, Bhikkhu Patimokha is that which has preserved the lineage to the present time. And so that's why the, the sense of respect for that, for the, the Bhikkhu Sangha, is not about respecting men or, or Buddhist monks are better than Buddhist nuns. It's not about gi giving those kind of uh, messages, even though that's how many, many of you interpret it. It's, uh, it's about respect for that which, for this tradition, which is based on the Patimokha 227 recitation every fortnight. Now we can see this personally, like, you know, in terms of, you know, gender issues and uh, men always being first and women second. Now that is a cultural interpretation that can be seen in terms of Sila Bhattabharamasa or Sakyaditi. Because this is a convention, it's an agreed way of living. So it's not, it's not promoting itself as that, you know, that, that making statements about who's better or who's superior. It's just an agreed structure to live in to reflect the Sakyaditi Silabhattabharamasa Vichikicha that arise from it. So when we respect the, the Sangha, when the peop, people bow to the Bhikkhu Sangha, the Siladharas bow to Bhikkhu Sangha, it's not uh, proclaiming that somehow they're inferior, it's a, it's a noble sense of gratitude and respect uh, for, the, for Sangha, for, not for individual monks, because there can be kind of personal resentments and that that arise when you think of, of your personal relationships with each of us. But the Bhikkhu Sangha does represent that lineage that survived from the time of the Buddha. The, that Buddha established the Bhikkhu Sangha. That was the, the first established Sangha. So in, in a tradition then, this is, it has a structure, and this structure is this way. You know, it's it's an, it's a it, structure. It doesn't mean we all are the same. You, when you have structure, you have you have to have one thing following another. So there's hierarchy, And hierarchy now is considered bad. I mean, being American, you know, I remember, <clears throat> you know, when I went to live in Asia, uh, you know, you had a class system or, or uh, hierarchical structures. We were based on, on egalitarian values. You know, American mindset is, is very much conditioned to egalitarian values and ideals about human rights, freedom, equality. Now, look at that, and it's pointing to those are beautiful ideals, so, but an ideal is just that, it's the best, you know, that we can think of. An ideal is not a living, breathing, changing thing. It, it, it can, you can have fixed ideals always at the best, you know, the best possible thing we can conceive of or think. 
And so egalitarianism and that is uh, their ideals. Now then the, the Buddha's pointing to Dhamma the way it is. Conditions changing to structure, to the conditioned phenomena and our relationship to the conditioned phenomena is one of uh, attachment and identity or reflection and discernment. So this is, this is where we transcend the structure through discernment. The liberation is through discerning the conditions rather than trying to arrange all the conditions according to uh, modern attitudes or modern ideals or my personal wishes. You see, so it, this is like a wisdom teaching. It's, it's for developing wisdom. And wisdom is not a, uh, something that's very apparent in modern life. You know, our societies are not producing wise, not producing wisdom in this way. With all our democratic ideals, isn't it, and, and, and values and human rights and so forth, these are good things, but they also, because we don't have wisdom, we don't know what to do, you know, to, to for, like communism, to force everybody to be a communist, to take the, all the riches away from the wealthy, kill the czar and, uh, and his family, <laughs> and force the egalitarianism on everybody as an ideal, like we saw, you know, in my own lifetime, the Soviet system based on ideals of egalitarian equality and that. And, it, and then, the, you know, it, the goal, I mean, communism as, a, as, a, as an ideal is very fine. Everything should be distributed equally and fair and and there shouldn't be any classes or, or one person above another. It should all, we should all be exactly, you know, the same. Same rights, same privileges, same everything. And then that's forced on us. An ideal forced on you is a form of tyranny. You see, so, so trying to promote equality as, a, as an act of will out of ignorance, the result is, a, is tyranny. So in, uh, like in uh, reflecting on the way it is, like we're in this perfect position right here and now to reflect on this, to be able to, to uh, discern suffering and its causes the cessation and the path. Now this has nothing to do with the position whether you're a monk or a nun or a lay person. It's not about that, that we have, you know, we're, our knowledge of Dhamma is superior to, to the lay people. And then a Sakya Ditti, isn't it? Somehow, you know, I'm should be respected because I'm somehow more serious or I've dedicated my life to the Dhamma and I could promote myself as a kind of inspiring person that you should all respect and admire, which would be Sakyaditi again. So it's, it's uh, this reflectiveness of seeing the Sakyaditi, an attachment to Sakyaditi out of ignorance, will always make me, give me some sense of fear, anxiety, worry, because it's putting me into that realm of change where I lose perspective, where I am threatened the conditioned body, isn't it? The body getting old. Anything could happen to it. 
You know, you don't know what's going on inside. All these liver and kidneys and the guts inside this body, you know, pretty old by now, 75 years old. It's very wearing out. <laughs> and so mentally, you know, you don't, you know, I don't, how my liver's doing or whatever it is, I don't even know till I have a checkup and then get somebody's opinion through, through um, some kind of doctor's authority. But the conditioned body definitely is, uh, you know, it's changing and it's, it's getting old and will die. And so this is, uh, you know, this is if my dependency for security lay on being healthy, then at this age, you, you know, don't, don't count on good health <laughs> uh, as your security. But bad health is not an obstruction either. Is it? The Sakyaditi is. So if you've got, if you're not healthy, that's not an obstruction to enlightenment. Sakyaditi is the fetter in it. Personality view, the ego, silabhattabharamasa, cultural, binding yourself to cultural prejudices, attitudes, positions. And even binding yourself to Theravada Buddhism from ignorance. Binding yourself to Padimokha rules out of ignorance. Binding yourself to your own views about tradition. About right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. You know, this is, you know, that is... Uh, the causes of suffering, if we're just caught, helplessly trapped into, into this, uh, you know, stuck on the spider's web, the butterfly in the net, you're trapped in that, in that uh, it's a trap of the conditioned realm. But if you recognize, discern, there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. That's the gate to the deathless. That is the amadasa tawara, the gate to the deathless. That is the escape from the, from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. And this you have to find for yourself. It's like taking the horse to water. Okay, I've taken you, all you horses, <laughs> to the water during this retreat, I hope. <laughs> I don't see how I could... <laughs> That's what I've been pointing at all this time. This is it. And then, whether you drink it or not, you know, you, you can't make, you can't force the horse to drink the water. <clears throat> so what I've said today is for reflection. It's not, I'm not coming from ex cathedra. You know, this is a, this is a reflective style meant to, you know, to, to understand the value of tradition if you, you know, if one doesn't like the tradition, it's not, you don't have to stay in it. You can find a, another tradition or another form or create your own. But, I mean, there's no laws uh, or, you know, there's no punishments for doing that. But if you want to use the tradition for liberation, then this is, this is you know, this is the opportunity that we offer here. That's its purpose, so that it, it is a convention for liberation, not for increasing suffering or uh, the ego. It's not a, a statement about being better or worse than any other tradition. It's just this is how this tradition works. How you know if you want. If you, you know, if you want, if you're interested and have confidence enough 
to try this out, then this is how to use it. And it does work, you know, it isn't a, it isn't a waste of time, it, it does, it is, uh, it will, you know, get to the causes of suffering if you're willing to, to uh, determine to practice with it, use it properly.